Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you. On the line with us is our friend Professor Richard Wolf, the economist, co-founder of democracyatwork.info, author of numerous books, his most recent, Understanding Socialism, rdwolf with two fs.com, also his website. You can tweet him at profwolf, as in Professor Wolf. I'm curious, this massive overhang of corporate debt and there was an article in the Financial Times this morning about how the Fed is just like, they used to buy treasuries. We've talked about this a couple times now. They used to buy treasuries, then they were buying investment grade corporate debt. Now they're buying junk bonds. And so basically every company in America, or at least every publicly traded company, is issuing debt, is issuing bonds that the Fed is buying and it's keeping them afloat. It's like a backdoor bailout. How long can this last? And is this trillion plus dollars of corporate debt What kind of threat does that represent, not just to the corporations, but to America? It's a scheme. It's a game of desperate people in a panic mode. It has to be understood as that. No one should be fooled by government officials in ties and jackets acting as though everything is under control. Nothing is under control. That's why they're doing these things. But let's deal with the particular question of corporate debt. We've had now the third crash of capitalism in the 21st century. The dot-com crash in 2000, the subprime mortgage crash in 2008, and now the coronavirus crash. In each case, a weak economy was vulnerable to something which in other circumstances had never caused the crash before. So suddenly we have to face what is wrong with the economy. But that's a taboo topic in in the United States and in most capitalist countries. You can criticize anything but not the economic system. So what do you do? You don't question it. You don't change it. What you do is you print money. That's what they did in 2000. That's what they did after 2008. And that's what they're doing now. The only difference is the quantities of money being produced are greater than ever. And in order to get that huge amount of new money out of the out of the box of the Federal Reserve and of the Treasury, you lower interest rates, which we know that they've done for 20 years now. Here's the problem. 
every company, large, small, and medium, now has one way to solve whatever problems it has. Free money or virtually free money, interest rates close to zero. So every corporation, no matter what it wants to do, buy back its stock, uh, give its corporate executives wild amounts of pay, go abroad, try a new technology, go into another line of business, whatever its plans, its problems, they're solved by borrowing. So here we are, 2020, with our corporate sector so overloaded with debt that for many companies, they're called zombie companies, the debt they owe, the interest and amortization of their debt is more now per year than the total net revenue they're bringing in from their business. They are technically bankrupt, even if they haven't gone through the process. This puts every company in an unbelievably vulnerable position, always on the edge of failure. So they're not going to hire the way they would if they weren't overloaded like that. They're not going to take any risks. You're in an economy that is slowly closing down, and the only reason people aren't focused on it is that the virus has made us close down even more dramatically, so we're losing sight of what this crisis is as it builds up. To put this in terms that I think every American can understand, when you get your credit card bill every month, you have the choice between just paying the interest on the bill, say you've got a $1,000 credit card balance, and and you could just pay the $20 interest, or you can pay all $1,000 of it and not pay any interest, or you can pay 500 bucks and pay interest, or whatever it may be, right? But those are your choices. But you got 1,000 bucks on your credit card, but then you decide, hey, I'm gonna live large. So you put $10,000 in your credit card, and now your interest payments are $200 a month. You can do that, because you make $500 a month, let's say. But then you say, hey, let's go to $50,000 on, on the credit card. Right. Now, now your interest payments are more than your paycheck. And all of a sudden, you can't even make your interest payments. And that's the point at which the bank goes, huh? A, have I characterized that correctly? And B, at what point do the banks that are, or, or the bondholders who are loaning these big corporations money say, wait a minute, this company, their cash flow is less than the amount of money that they owe us. Absolutely. At that point, the bank realizes it can't go on funding this company. It is simply too risky. And then the company collapses. Could that happen? Yes, it is happening as we speak. But there are other dimensions that folks don't seem to understand. If the government is handing out free money to every corporation that's in over its head, which in this country is at least half of all the corporations, the rest of the world is going to say, you are cheating. Your government is subsidizing your corporations. And that's unfair competition with this British company, this Japanese company, this Chinese company. And those companies are not going to sit by uh, recognizing that, for example, an American company that gets free money can drop its price a little bit and so outcompete a competitor from China or Britain or Brazil. They're not going to allow their government to sit by and do nothing. And so you're going to grow into a global crisis because this kind of funny money economic system that we are now in is unacceptable to the rest of the world. That's not the way capitalism is supposed to work, that every problem you have is solved by the government handing out free money. It also means 
just to get the idea across, that the value of the dollar is now in great question. As the world turns away from doing business with the United States, especially with a government which will not listen to the demands of uh, not doing this kind of stuff, the rest of the world is not going to deal with the dollar anymore. It's too risky. They don't want to accumulate dollars. They don't know what a government that behaves this way may do to the value of the dollar with its behavior. And so you're going to see an atrophy of our opportunities abroad as the Chinese and the Europeans and the others turn more to one another and away from the nationalist thrust of what is going on here, both to handle the crisis and in all the other ways that the American government is with drawing from a real engagement with the rest of the world. It almost seems as if the Trump, and now, you know, you've got Jerome Powell playing this game as well, which is, back when I thought he was an economist, was shocking. Now that I learned that he's an investment banker, oh. <laughs> well, I guess it makes sense. Um, right. But it almost seems as if they're trying to kneecap our economy. Like, this is some intentional plan to do as much damage to the United States as possible during the four years that Donald Trump is in the White House. Is that too paranoid or weird? Or, I mean, does the evidence support a conclusion like that? I don't think so. I mean, I may be wrong and you may be right, Tom, but I think more the way it makes sense to me is, and I know this is scary, but I don't know how else to make sense of it. This is the end of a system. This is the kind of we're in trouble if we don't do something bizarre, we're in trouble if we do do something bizarre, and it's a panic, and everything is a matter of days and weeks. This is what happens when systems run out of gas, when it's over. You know, capitalism has had a run for three or four hundred years. It has nothing to be ashamed of in terms of its achievements. It has plenty to be ashamed of in the human cost of doing it. But that's true for all other systems, too, that we know of. And so I think these are signs of a much larger terminal kind of problem. Scary as that is, I think that's what we're seeing. Yeah, and thus, this is a time when we actually need leadership from people who do things Absolutely. like read. And that's another Professor. symptom that we're in trouble. Yeah, there you go. Professor Richard Wolf. thanks so much for being with us today. Good talking. All right. Thank you, Tom. Yep. See you next week. The first fast food franchisee to advise Donald Trump on reopening restaurants has donated more than $400,000 to Trump's re-election, including $200,000 in March. Kate Taylor writing about this for Business Insider. A roundtable with restaurant industry leaders and President Trump, this was last Monday, would be the first time fast food franchisees participate in these discussions. James Bodenstead, who's the CEO of the company that owns Wendy's, Taco Bell, Pizza Hut, and whatnot, franchises. He has donated over $440,000 to Trump's re-election campaign, including $200,000 that he donated just a few weeks ago in late March. Uh, the CEO of Landry's, uh, Tillman Fertitta, is also speaking at the roundtable. Uh, Tillman donated $35,000 to the Trump Victory Pack in February. So basically, Donald Trump is bringing together a bunch of fast food franchisees to advise him on how to run his bailout program and the, the recovery program. You know, he's looking for people who have donated to him. It's really, it's really pretty pathetic. Wall Street is now bundling toxic loans again. We had a caller talking about how a company that's with whom you have your mortgage 
is in theory supposed to give you a three month reprieve without tacking it on at the end, you know, without a balloon payment, but rather moving it to the very end of the mortgage. And that three months can be rolled over into six months. But the reality is that most mortgages in the United States are no longer held by the companies that loaned you the money. They have bundled them and sold them to third parties who are, quote, mortgage servicers. And these mortgage servicers, they don't have the cash flow to pause the mortgages for three to six months. They have to make the payments to the mortgage companies because they're the middlemen. They're not covered by this law. And so when people call up and they get a hold of one of these mortgage servicers and say, you know, I need a three month pause here. The mortgage servicers either tell them it's not possible or tell them that there's a balloon payment or scare them. You know, you know, you can go to jail if there's any fraud involved in this stuff. If you didn't fill out the application right, et cetera, et cetera. Well, it gets worse than that. Over on Wall Street, there's a new ProPublica examination that found that some of the biggest banks in the world have been, quote, engaged in a systemic fraud to inflate the value of commercial mortgages. Now, I was talking about home mortgages just a minute ago. These are commercial mortgages, commercial real estate that has been bundled into securities and then sold to other investors. This is a virtual repeat of 2008. ProPublica found evidence. This is a, a based on a whistleblower's complaint. A business that with a net income of $1,100,000 in 2016 was claimed to have had an income of $1.3 million. A loan for a trailer park when bundled was declared to have expenses about a third lower than in years past. The investigators examined six loans and found similar patterns in every single one of them. Remember the liar loans? They tried to blame the whole crash of 2008, the Bush crash. They tried to blame that on first-time homeowners, particularly Hispanics, who uh, you know, didn't have to state their income. In fact, didn't even have to say if they were employed. And banks were happily giving out mortgages to these people. Well, it wasn't those people's fault. It was the banks who were soliciting them, saying, hey, I can get you a mortgage and you don't even have to prove that you're employed. And and now, apparently, the same thing is happening with commercial mortgages, and they're piling these things up. So it's pretty bad stuff. Meanwhile, 10 horrifying numbers, this from uh, the Economic Collapse blog, showing that the U.S. is actually now in a depression. National Bureau of Economic Research, more than 100,000 U.S. businesses have permanently shut down. The Federal Reserve, number one. Number two, the Federal Reserve is predicting that the GDP of the United States, this is the Federal Reserve Bank of Atlanta, not the entire Fed, is going to shrink by 42% during the second quarter. I frankly doubt it's going to be quite that bad, but I think it's going to be well over 30%. Uh, Number three, on Friday we learned U.S. retail sales were down 16%. That's an all-time record. Number four, factory output is down almost 14% last month. That's the worst ever recorded. Number five, U.S. industrial production fell 11.2%. That's the worst number in 101 years. Uh, We learned that the number of Americans who filed initial claims for unemployment went up by another 2.9 million. That was last week, last Thursday. That gives us 36.5 million officially unemployed. And then you've got millions and millions of people who live in red states where the unemployment systems basically don't work or are designed to deny claims. Florida's probably the worst because of the way that Rick Scott put it together when he was governor. So there's millions more that are trying to get unemployment benefits, trying to be on the official list. But we've got 36 million officially there. It's probably closer to 40, 45. 
The Federal Reserve Bank of Chicago says now the actual unemployment rate in the United States today is 30%. Almost 40% of households with an income of less than $40,000 a year say they've lost a job during this crisis. 42%, according to this study, of the job losses will end up being permanent. A U.S. homeless population could rise by 45% by the end of this year. This is really grim stuff. J.C. Penney filing for Chapter 11. A lot of these companies, by the way, that are going bankrupt, particularly some of these retail companies, are companies that had been bought up or taken over by these vulture capital firms, this so-called private equity, you know, this scam that Mitt Romney used to turn himself into a billionaire. Basically, they buy the company, they borrow a billion dollars, they buy the company for a billion dollars, and then they make the company pay back the billion dollar loan out of cash flow and by laying off half their staff. And then once the billion dollar loan is paid off by the company, the vulture capital people, the private equity people, then sell the company and keep the money. And the company is now busted and bankrupt and all kinds of, you know, this is what happened to Clear Channel, for example. It's happening in sector after sector after sector. Well, these are the most vulnerable companies, and they're the ones that are dropping like flies right now. Are we going to survive billionaires in the White House, billionaires in the cabinet, billionaires running television networks that spew propaganda? And if so, how, how long will it all last? Dennis in Bergenfield, New Jersey. Hey, Dennis, what's on your mind today? In one day, uh, eight people made $6.2 billion, while 33 million Americans lost their jobs. My question is, how would you respond to people who say that billionaires earn their money? How would you, you know, fair and square, how would you respond to that? Yeah, may well be. Uh, you know, I kind of like the old saying, you know, behind every great fortune, there's a great crime. But it's not always true. And, uh, you know, a lot of billionaires came up with cool ideas or, you know, whatever. I mean, you know, inherited some good money from daddy, whatever the case may be. But I think the, the larger question, Dennis, is not whether people earn their money or not, but how much is enough? How much is too much, in fact? At what point does private accumulation of wealth begin to damage society? At what point does it begin to damage the ability of government to function? And frankly, I think you know a billion dollars is, is an absolute upper limit, an absolute upper limit. And I would argue that we should have an income tax that, um, you know, when you're making like, like it was when Ronald Reagan came into office, like it was during uh, Nixon's time and during Lyndon Johnson's time and Jimmy Carter's time and Dwight Eisenhower's time and Jack Kennedy's time and Harry Truman's time, that when you started earning over about $3 million a year in today's money, your top tax rate went up to around 90%. And of course, LBJ dropped that down to 67 or down to 70, 74% in 67. Um, but still, you know, your top tax rate went up to 74% when you started earning over $3 million a year. And so as a result of that, prior to Reagan, your average CEO made 30 times what the janitor made, the lowest paid employee, 30 times. Now, in some cases, it's 10,000 times, 100,000 times. I mean, it's mind boggling. And what we know now, if, particularly if you look at the work by uh, Kate Pickett and Richard Wilkinson, you know, the, their, their book, The Spirit Level, their book, Why Inequality Matters, is that when these huge concentrations of wealth happen, it distorts democracy. They, you know, because wealth is power, it's political power. The Supreme Court has made it so. And it distorts society as a whole. 
The greater the inequality in a society, the higher the levels of teenage pregnancy, sexually transmitted diseases, suicide, mental illness, homicide, um, drug addiction, uh, illiteracy. I mean, you name the social ill, homelessness, you name your social ill, it goes up when societies become more unequal. I'm not talking about societies becoming poorer, just more unequal. So yeah, I, I, I have a problem with that. And, and I think that you know we have historically had this problem. Teddy Roosevelt saw this in 1907 and said, okay, enough, we're gonna do something about this. And they passed the inheritance tax. And, you know, which the, the, the Walton family hired Frank Luntz and said, change the word from inheritance tax. Everybody kind of likes that or estate tax. And he turned it into the death tax, right, with Walton money. And <laughs> step by step. Anyhow, Dan in Olympia, Washington. Hey, Dan, what's up? Glad to be on the show. Uh, I totally agree with what uh, uh, your assessment of our current taxation situation Um I think what people don't really realize is, is that all these guys that are sitting on their fannies on Wall Street making all this dough, people don't realize that, in, that back in the 50s, in order for those rich people to, to get rich, they had to produce more. In other words, when they have to pay higher taxes in order to maintain their profit margins, they have to do more to make that money. These days, they really don't have to do anything. They can sit on their butts and and, uh, uh, and depend on Wall Street. The reason I'm calling now all they have to do is to direct their chief financial officer to take you know a couple billion dollars of their profit and buy back their stock in the open market. It drives up the stock price, which is how they're compensated, and they they get it. You know they drop an extra ten, twenty, thirty, fifty, hundred million dollars in their checking account. Exactly, and we've seen it happen time and time again. The, th- the point I want to make is, you know, while we want to point our fingers at all these different you know, politicians, and, and I'll be the first to admit that uh, uh, our current president's uh, reprehensible behavior knows no depths, but we elected him. You know, and when I look at all of the different things going around, going on around the country, I, I, I have to say to myself, we keep electing the same people who continue to keep screwing us. It's our, it's our citizenry that's not paying attention. We yeah, we did not elect Trump. Donald Trump, Dan. The, the Electoral College elected Donald Trump. We voted for Hillary Clinton to the tune of three million more votes than Donald Trump got. But your point is well taken. And, and you know, it, it's a testimonial to the effectiveness of this giant right-wing media machine, this giant right-wing lie machine that was built based on the Powell memo in 1971, that was built throughout the 1970s and 1980s, that then brought us the Reagan administration, brought us right-wing hate radio, brought us Mur- the Murdoch family's, uh, you know, Fox News that's literally killing Americans, you know, with their denial and, and whatnot. This is just to address what you're talking about. This is from Bloomberg News. Canada unveiled, this is just two days ago, Canada unveiled a loan program for large firms, right? Up to this point, Canada has been bailing out average working people and they've been bailing out small businesses. But the big businesses in Canada were saying, wait a minute, we need some help. And so, you know, in the United States, we helped the big companies first. And now we're talking about helping the small companies, maybe if Mitch McConnell will allow it. In Canada, they helped out the small companies and the citizens first. But then, the, you know, the big companies came along and said, we need some money, too. And so Canada appropriated, they, create, they created this thing called the Large Employer Emergency Financing Facility. They endowed it with $214 million, which is big bucks in Canada. And just listen to this. This is uh, Kate Bolsonaro uh, wrote this for Bloomberg. 
Firms in all sectors can apply for the funding, except the finance industry. Banks can't get the money. Company receive, companies that do receive the money will have to accept limits on executive pay, dividends, and share buybacks. No banks, no insurance companies, no brokerage houses. You can't have any money. Sorry. And by the way, anybody else who gets it, you got to cut the pay of your CEO or at least freeze it. No more bonuses, no more stock buybacks. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. The difference between us and Canada? Canada never had a Supreme Court that said that corporations are people and that owning politicians was free speech. That's the big difference. Richard in uh, Tacoma, Washington. Hey, Richard, what's on your mind? Oh, Tom, please review. Review the insidious influence, the history of the Ayn Rand philosophy on our current situation. I know that you know it deeply and well. The Ayn Rand philosophy was favored by Paul Ryan, Alan Greenspan. Yes, I agree, Richard. Paul Ryan required people, when they joined his team, when he was in the House of Representatives and when he was Speaker of the House, required people to read Ayn Rand's book, Atlas Shrugged. Phil Proctor, the the guy from the Firesign Theater, an old friend of mine, forwarded me a cartoon two or three days ago. I think it was Saturday he forwarded it to me. And it was a picture of, you know, a dad and his son. They were sitting on the son's bed in his bedroom. And the dad was holding something that looked like a book or a magazine in his hand. And the son had this kind of worried look on his face. And the, the caption was the dad saying to the son, I don't so much care about the porno magazines and the cigarettes, but I want to know who gave you this Ayn Rand book. There you go. <laughs> it's like... It was and like, and Elon, Elon Musk today yeah. is practicing... Another, another acolyte of Ayn Rand. He's practicing the Ayn Rand philosophy right today. You're absolutely right. And Trump is cheering him on, by the way. And it was mentioned that Donald Trump favors that book among the few he ever reads. Yeah, although I don't believe he ever read it. I think the, you know, he used to have Hitler's collected speeches next to his bed, according to his first wife. Those were short excerpts, so I'm guessing that's probably the only thing he's ever read. Richard, thank you for the call. Spot on. George in Palm Desert, California. Hey, George, what's on your mind today? I often hear Agent Orange in the White House say that he inherited empty shells from Obama, and I'm not quite sure what he's referring to. Is he referring to PPE or what, if you could clarify that? He's just pulling stuff out of his backside, George. He's just lying through his teeth. He didn't inherit any empty shells from Obama. The national stockpile was there. One of the things he did do about a year before we needed that stockpile is he cut the budget for maintenance. So many of those machines, when they went to take them out of stockpile, because they hadn't been maintained in over a year, the plastic was starting to dry out and crack and had to be, you know, hoses had to be replaced. Batteries had died to the point where, you know, they had to be replaced. I mean, you know, they require regular, you know, at the very least annual maintenance and Trump had stopped that. But he had a stockpile. One of his other complaints is that Obama left him broken and, I forget the word, dysfunctional or something like that, coronavirus tests. Well, there was no coronavirus. It's called COVID-19 because it was discovered in 2019. Trump became president in 2017. So, you know, he's just lying through his teeth, George. This is what he does. That's what I figured. Thanks, Tom. Yeah, thanks a lot, George. And in fact, there was a fascinating study that one of the psychologists out there published over the weekend showing that when Trump lies, he actually speeds up his rate of speech. He talks a little faster. 
which means he's more comfortable. He's actually more comfortable when he's making crap up than when he's telling the truth. Tom Harbin here with you, Richard in Santa Fe, New Mexico. Hey, Richard, what's up? Regarding this accumulation of obscene uh, wealth, I actually think it belongs in the DSM. It is to, in the to DSM. To actually acquire, well, hoarding, but not really the yes. accumulation of wealth. How is having a, a house filled floor to ceiling with newspapers any different than having a house filled floor to ceiling with gold and statues? And or with thousand dollar bills. I, I agree with you, right, but I think exactly. it actually should be identified. And furthermore, it actually hurts the society in which you live. That's, you know, right. there's a sickness here. So I think it actually yes. needs to be categorized and identified. So. I, I absolutely agree with you, Richard. I, I absolutely agree. And, and I, you know, and, I, and, and to your point against my point or whatever you want to call it, um, I, I agree with you that the hoarding syndrome, which is in the DSM, it, does, it needs to be defined to extend to money or there needs to be a separate category uh, about hoarding excessive wealth and, and being willing to destroy other people's lives to get it, which is another piece right. of that. Spot on, Richard. Brilliant. Thank you. Barry in River Forest, Illinois. Hey, Barry, what's up? Hey, Tom. Hey, listen, I'm a speed reader, and I wanted to recommend some books to you if you had a chance to read Crash by Adam Tooze and The Wizard and the Prophet by Charles C. Mann. They talk about the mid-20th century, about the supersede and how the United hmm. States was trying to overcome stem rust with the farm belt, and that once we okay. were able to create I a supersede in the way I of crops... I am not familiar with these, Barry, but thanks for the suggestion. You know, generally speaking, if you have suggestions for books for me to read or movies to see or whatever, just tell our call screener. Charles in Miami. Hey, Charles, what's up? I always love your show, Tom, but um, I got to disagree with you when you say, um, well, I put it this way. When Republican and conservative, when they take over, when it's their governments, that's when we fail. That's when Americans die. So they don't know how to govern and they don't know how to rule. To be honest with you, the only way I feel about it is they don't care if people live. They don't care how you live as long as they get rich, whether it's from, the, you know, from um, government contracts which and no big contracts. Because um, you've always talked about um, this American oligarchy. And I would say that, you know, the government contracts, um, the no bids, even the, um, what is this? Well, they, they bring along, they, they turn those people into oligarchs. The privatization, that's yeah. what I'm trying to say. You know. So that, what are we disagreeing about, Charles? Because it sounds to me like you're saying what I've been saying. I just term it in this way. When Republican governing, that's the problem. They don't know how to govern. Yeah. But you got you to gotta put it in the right way. You got to put Republican in front. Because government is not the problem. It's the way Republicans run it. You look at Mitch McConnell and it's the personification. He is the perfect face of the Republican Party. All this bizarre stuff. Charles, I got to run, but thank you for the call. You, you said it well, and I, I disagree. We don't disagree. How's that? It's like the uh, argument booth in the old Monty Python routine. You know, I'm here for an argument. No, you're not. Yes, I am. Gary in Detroit. Hey, Gary, what's on your mind today? I agree with you 110% with regard to the way the Democrats have been doing things in terms of posturing and a position of compromise. But frankly, I think it's not just a matter of them not knowing about negotiations. I think it really is a matter of they don't want to piss off the corporate donors, and so they end up taking these positions. 
And frankly, if they keep doing this, this is a very dangerous trend. In my view, part of the problem is is that the economic fallout that we're going to have from this crisis is going to be so much more considerable than one might imagine. And when that happens, those who have offered solutions that are non-solutions, for example, allowing people to end up paying COBRA or have something that, that helps them just with COBRA is not going to be sufficient. And that is something that can potentially lead to either extremists on the right screaming about how the Democrats are not doing something and there not being any sort of alternative. We need to be out there with a progressive alternative, and we need to recognize that part of the reason why FDR did what he did was because there was a radical left. You know, the Communist Party membership during the Great Depression was very considerable. As was the Nazis. <laughs> but, yeah, I get right. your point, Gary. And, and, in fact, what my objection is that, you know, COBRA is not a structural change. It's taking a broken system and just flooding more money into it, which, you know, to, to some extent was what Obamacare was, too. And the, right. here's, I mean, you know, to, to take Rahm Emanuel's famous quote, never let a crisis go to waste, uh, which, of course, is... It's been embraced by, by people on the right forever. You know, Naomi Klein wrote a book about it, Disaster Capitalism. Um, but, you know, here we have an opportunity to rethink structural stuff. And while we're passing out trillions of dollars, let's do that. And, and uh, so, you know, yeah, I completely agree with you, uh, Gary. And, and, uh, and, and yes, there are a lot of Democrats, probably about half the party, uh, you know, in terms of elected officials, who, in order to get elected and reelected and maintain their, their position of power, have to be taking or believe that they have to be taking money from big corporations and, and you know, fat cats and whatnot. And that compromises the Democratic Party as well, whereas it's may, you know, 100 percent of the Republican Party. Who was the most popular president of the entire 20th century? It was FDR. FDR. And what did he do? He did these populist policies. And frankly, that's why the Dems had control as long as they did, except for every once in a while, like, you know, in the, 19, uh, in the late 1940s or with Eisenhower. But even then, Eisenhower was a progressive in comparison to today's Republican. And the Democrats yeah. basically had controlled Congress very strongly most of the time up through Reagan. So, you know, the idea Well, and that's that my point. The, 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 the Great Depression created the space for that, Gary. The, you know, right. had it not been for the Great Depression, uh, you know, FDR would have been yelling into the wind the way Teddy Roosevelt was. I mean, Teddy Roosevelt got some good stuff done. He got the Tillman Act through. You know, he got money out of federal elections. He got, uh, you know, the inheritance tax passed. But that was about it. Um, but FDR was able to do what he was able to do because a third of America was unemployed. Well, guess what? Or 25 percent. Guess what? We're there again. And this represents a huge opportunity. Gary, I need to I need to move along. But thank you for the call. Lowell in Salem, Oregon. Hey, Lowell, what's up? You know, like many bad things from the 80s, from hair bands to superdelegates, uh, unemployment started getting taxed in 1986 with the Tax Reform Act. And since Republicans love to eliminate taxes, why don't Democrats propose uh, eliminating taxes on unemployment insurance? 
And I would add, you know, in 83, Reagan slapped a tax on Social Security benefits. They had never been taxed before that. These were both, uh, you know, wonderful little taxes on average working people that Ronald Reagan put into place to compensate for the billions and billions in today's dollars that he was shoveling out the door to his uh, plutocrat buddies. I'm with you. Uh, I'm with you, Lowell. And, and again, you know, if Democrats want to think big, these are the kinds of things that they could be thinking big about. Thank you for the call. Walt in Ontario, Canada. Hey, Walt, what's up? Wow. Tom, I've been listening to you for 16 years. Amazing. Uh, well, thank you. I just want to say I was born in America, Detroit area, worked for automotive supplier, and uh, I'm amazed you guys cannot do uh, Medicare. Well, I'm not amazed. I know how it works. I know how the Republican Party is. And, uh, you know, we used to listen to you in my man cave for about seven or eight years in my last place. And uh, <clears throat> they're never going to, there's the. So the you live in Canada that. now and you have Medicare for all in Canada. You want to give us a, a quick snapshot? Uh, you know, Americans who don't know what we're talking about here um, as an American. Here you know, when I was how kid, it works I educated there. here and then I went to school in the States. And of course, uh, I can work both sides of the border. So I get a job in the U.S. And uh, uh-huh. now since they've manipulated what they love to call Obamacare, the Affordable Care Act, because they use that as a stigmatism. But you know how it was manipulated with the help of uh, Ro- Justice Roberts and all. And the fact that mm-hmm. uh, I don't use my health care over there because I just got hip. I'm only four. I'm almost 50. I just got a hip replacement last year. It was going to cost me 12 grand with my coverage through my company. That's better than the automotive in the U.S. Industry. It's amazing. Yeah. Uh-huh. Amazing. Whereas in so, Canada, would have cost you what? It didn't cost me nothing. Not so you got it done in Canada and it was free. Yes. And I can. I got to tell you, I've always tried to get a hold of you before. Back years ago, I ripped my nose off my face in a snowmobile accident. And to fill my Ouch. prescriptions then, because I had a U.S. coverage and it was different because it not wrapped around what was done through Obamacare, but the manipulation of the medical coverage and how they... They don't want the public option, you know, the Republican Party. I can tell you, I had to fill my prescription, but I had to see my doctor in the U.S. And this guy was in practice. He was 68 years old. And he, when he looked one look at me, because, you know, I was a mess, he called his partner into the office. And they were all about, hey, there's a problem. You didn't call the 1-800 number. I'm like, what number is that? Well, if you didn't call this before they did this emergency surgery to put my face back together, who's going to pay for this? I said, I've never seen a doctor before. I said, well, you're not paying attention. I live in Canada, so I have, I pay taxes on both sides of the border. I use my, my Canadian coverage. Oh, but it still costs. He said, you were in emergency surgery? I said, yeah, a couple hours. They took my nose off my face, put it back on, and you couldn't, you couldn't even tell now, right? And they were both yeah. astonished. They said, absolutely, no bill. I said, no bill, and a two-day stay, and sent me home with my stuff. But now i got to fill my prescription, so through my U.S coverage that's why i'm here and those two guys were like i think we didn't know it worked that way you know that they're you and whenever i work for a u.s employer and i've worked for six of them now it's always how can you live in canada are you kidding me the the coverage they just don't get it that oh you're paying 15 which is now 13 percent sales tax there's not no such thing remember michigan is the automotive capital of the world with the worst roads on earth Worst roads in South Africa, yeah. and only 30% of the roads are, are 
think yeah, it's it's crazy. Yeah, it is. It is ironic, Walt. Uh, speaking as a Michigander. Yeah, uh, Walt. Thanks for the call. It's nice to hear from you, and and uh, and you know to get your perspective and to get the real story on what's going on with Canadian healthcare. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Joan in Rochester, Minnesota. Hey, Joan, what's on your mind today? The banks foreclosing on homes and everything. Back mm-hmm. years ago, the banks used had a method that they used to accumulate these um, homes that were foreclosed on. A young mm-hmm. couple would go in, and I have first-hand knowledge because I worked with buyers, and mm-hmm. the bank would say, your credit rate is a little low, uh, we'll give you this rate right now, and we'll give you two years to raise your credit score. And at that time, we will give you the going rate for your property We, if you can raise your score. So the two years go by. The young couple go in, and the bank says to them, oh, well, we've ra- raised our limits you now have to have a higher credit score, which you did not do. So your new rate for your loan is 12%. Well, these people, these young people, could not afford the new 12%. Mm. And they were lied to in the beginning. And they lost right. their homes. It was it's not the buyers. It was not the young people who were excited about getting a home. It was the fact that the banks right in the beginning, had no intention of giving them a rate and had every intention of foreclosing on those homes. And it happened to two or three of my clients because I worked with low-income uh, families. So they can wow. say all they want and criticize these young home buyers, But the banks did a number on them, and it sounds like that's what they're planning on doing again. And I hope... Somebody warns them or tells the bank to knock it off. Yeah, this bankster griff like Steve Mnuchin was practicing in California back before 2008 um, really needs to stop. And it's one of the things that Elizabeth Warren has been all over. Bernie Sanders has spoken out extensively about as well. Joan, thank you. Thanks for sharing your expertise and your experience with us. Paul in Woodenville, Washington. Hey, Paul, how are you today? What's up? Well, I'm just thinking, given what's going on in the previous caller's citing a bazooka and uh, <laughs> yeah Tom, i hope people don't think that once if once donald trump is defeated and i pray that he will be i don't think he's going to go away i don't think any of this right-wing propaganda is going to go away in fact i think it's going to increase it'll increase yep. in the media because he don't he won't have the bully pulpit of the presidency uh the president's podium to to do what he does uh, I, what's that one American network or whatever you hear that advertised on right wing radio. So that's going to be, and now you have this situation. Oh, he and his buddies are trying to buy that, you know? Oh yeah. Well, I, I hear the uh, advertisements, um, for, you know, all of his pals, uh, you can see Rudy Giuliani and, uh, I mean, all the names that we know and love, uh, mm. it's just a big propaganda network. And do you think he's going to shut his mouth when he's defeated? He's going to say, "Oh, no. I, uh, congratulations to congratulations to Joe Biden." No, he's going to say he's a cricket, cricket, and it's just going to get worse and worse. The guy's a psychopath, and now it's ingrained in the society. Where I mean, what happened here that people can 
Michigan, they walk around with guns in the in the state house seat of government, and you got bazookas in the subway. Wait a minute. Here's what I wonder. You know, if you have a gun and you feel threatened, you can shoot somebody. But what if I don't have a gun and I feel threatened? What can I do? Nothing. Or I'll get shot. That's what our societies could come to. And we are going to find bands of bullies in every state pushing people around unless you push them back. And it's time to start punching them in the mouth. And I mean that figuratively. I mean that in terms of what you say. There you go. Yeah, okay, I get that. Um, I think, though, if we look at the lessons of history, Paul, the Klan was real active in the 1920s, particularly during the Roaring Twenties. And uh, then the Great Depression happened, and uh, everybody was like, whoa, you know, we've got to deal with this. And then Franklin Roosevelt started putting our country back together in a way that was collective rather than divisive. And I I may be wrong, but I believe that Klan activity actually dropped during the 30s and 40s. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm hopeful that we'll see something like that, whether that's actually what happened in, back then or not. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm hopeful that that uh, that will be the outcome of this. You know, that, well, that I think, yeah, the, the being, thing is that we had cities growing like they weren't in the 20s. The 20s, the cities were still only half the people lived in cities. Half the people lived still on the right. farm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's true. And now farm is like you know, 10% or less. Paul, thanks a lot for the call. It's always nice to hear from you. Jeff in Portland. Hey, Jeff, what's on your mind today? Uh, another great show. Thank you. Before my question, since you're a big pro-labor guy, as am I, I wanted to give you a heads up. There was an excellent piece in this past weekend's Detroit Free Press marking the 50th anniversary of death. Free Press writer Jamie LaRose, she did a great piece on the life and career of Walter Ruther. And it's titled Walter oh, Ruther's Family Says of the UAW Icon, He Never Sold Out. It's really a fascinating piece, and the guy really did amazing work to build the middle class. So I recommend it highly. Cool. I'll check but, it out. Um, when I, I grew up in Michigan, and he was one of our heroes. There used to be a freeway named after him in Detroit, and I, mm-hmm. and I, would, assume, I would assume it's it still there. Yeah, and, you know, Jimmy Hoffa gets all the uh, movies. I'd like to see a Walter Ruther movie. Maybe Michael Moore can redeem himself <laughs> and do a movie on Walter Ruther. Something so, like that. Yeah, but my question, Tom, is regarding the new relief bill, you know, doubling the $1,200 and making it monthly rather than a one-time payment and expanding Medicare rather than subsidizing COBRA would be two areas that I would start to address. And Congressman Pocan he did say we should call our individual members of Congress. But, Tom, what, what do you think about calling the progressive caucus leaders as well and asking them to prioritize some improvements and whip the progressive caucus to hold out until we get them in this bill? You know, the progressive caucus is triple the size that the so-called Freedom Caucus was, and look at what they did to transform the Republican Party. Yeah. Don't you think we should be exerting pressure to get the uh, Progressive Caucus to unite and coalesce around a couple, two or three major improvements to this bill? They are largely united, uh, Jeff, and they and they are supportive of specifics, both in principle and, and in legislation. The difference is 
that the Freedom Caucus was basically a, an astroturf organization put together by right-wing billionaires, by a small group of right-wing billionaires, and you know who I'm talking about. And so anything that they did, they had a multi-million dollar PR machine behind them. Uh, every event that they staged, they had all the, all the necessary trappings to, to draw the press, you know, right down to, to, to instant crowds and everything else. And uh, there is no such funding for the Congressional Progressive Caucus. They are, they are struggling to get by. Uh, they don't have billionaire backers. Um, yeah. uh, you know, it, but, it's just it's the continual frustration of people on the left. Yeah, I, I understand that, Tom. And it's not it's not it's not a, a, a true um, apples to apples comparison. But, you know, this not bill is, is, is this bill is just a starting point in negotiations. You know, so when you start, you know, without offerings your best stuff. My objection to this legislation is that the Democrats put on the table what they thought was acceptable to Republicans and what they wanted. And instead, what they should have said is, we want $6 trillion. We want Medicare for every single person in the United States. We want to do like Australia is doing. Every single person in the country uh, who has held a job in the last 24 months gets $3,000 a month, period, full stop, or, you know, or their pay, whichever is greater uh, or whichever is less. And, and just go for it and then let, let the Republicans negotiate them back. But, you know, Democrats don't do that, I guess. The reason I'm calling, Tom, is to recommend a couple of pieces by David Roberts at Vox. Uh, one is about getting stimulus money to electrify the post office's fleet, something you've talked about. Um, the average mm-hmm. age of those trucks is 28 years old. So he says it, it would mm-hmm. just take it would take six billion dollars to uh, electrify the whole fleet. And, you know, that would make cities a lot greener. Um, and the other piece he he wrote is called "How to Make a City Livable During Like During Lockdown," and it's a really great synergistic look at how you know making cities greener will also make them more pandemic proof. And the biggest way to do that is by taking space away from cars and giving it to people and pedestrians. Oakland, California, for instance, Tom, they've uh, since this pandemic uh, started, they've converted 72 miles of streets into walkways and bikeways. So have you, have you wow. uh, given any thought? And Milan was in The Guardian for doing uh, a similar thing recently. Have you, have you uh, given much thought to these ideas? I think they're great ideas. And, and, you know, we've seen a lot of cities around the world. You know, Munich was probably famously one of the early ones back in the 60s to basically take chunks of their downtown and turn it into pedestrian areas. Um, getting rid of cars and, and build bicycle paths. Denmark has done spectacular work turning streets into bicycle-only areas. You know, there's a lot that can be done. And green power, I love the idea of electrifying the fleet of postal vehicles. Of course, this is something the post office was talking about in 2005 and yeah. 2006, and it's what's provoked, in my opinion, what provoked the Republicans to take them down, basically to kneecap them with that $5 billion a year uh, obligation. Another big point he makes is it seems counterintuitive right now, but putting more money into public public transit because fast, uh, mm-hmm. more frequent service would create more space, less crowding on buses and trains. Oh, that's an excellent point. That's a that's a very excellent point, Jeff. Thanks a lot for the call. Yeah, in fact, it's the same thing as with flights. You know, the, the, there was a story in the New York Post about a flight from Florida to New York that was packed with people because the airline's only running one flight a day. It's crazy. Brent in Columbus, Ohio. Hey, Brent, what's up? Democrats, the party of labor. That's always how it's been in my lifetime. Uh, Mm -hmm. That's always how I voted and what I believed. And I served as a local union president for steel workers for a while here. Good on you. And I look around. Oh, 
well, it, it was my pleasure not to, you know, it was really a pleasure to serve my brothers and sisters there. But um, I, I look around my state, you know, we have Tim Ryans and we have Sherrod Browns and they're champions of labor and, and you know, um, Wisconsin has Tammy Baldwin's and Congressman Pocans and such. But there's an awful lot, unfortunately, of politicians, even on our side, even the Democrats, who they they serve the the, the labor with their with their rhetoric, but and the actions it, it doesn't seem to to hold up. And as a result, I've seen some of my brothers and sisters falling away in areas that used to be reliably blue and heavily so, like Mahoning County and Youngstown, heavy USW area, barely barely went blue this time. Lucas County the same way. Um, we're, we're we're losing. And it's really, really, it's sad because the idea that that Donald Trump <laughs> cares about labor is laughable, um, and yet somehow um, we've lost uh, the ability to speak to these people. And I, I don't, I'm not sure yeah. how to get it back. You know. Well, there's two things we need to do. Number one, we need to point out that uh, Donald Trump put Eugene Scalia. Uh, Antonin Scalia's son, who was a lawyer who advised companies on how to break unions, put him in charge of the Labor Department. He's running the Labor Department right now. A, a guy who made his, you know, who makes his living breaking unions. And, and uh, you know, so number one, we need to point that out on the Republican side. But on the Democratic side, the Democrats have to start fighting for labor again. It's been a long, long time since Democrats waged a war on behalf of labor. Since, you know, and if you don't like war metaphors, since, uh, since Democrats showed up for labor. And, you know, it used to be the case, right? It, I mean, it was always the case historically up until the 80s. And then, you know, Reagan came along and wiped out the unions and, and uh, you know the Democrats just kind of uh, rolled over. So, uh, you know, sadly. Even um, but even in the fifties, I'm sorry. Even in the fifties, Eisenhower was a Republican, and he, and he was quite strong on labor. I mean, the the, the party, he supported labor. In 1956, yes, go back and look at his presidential platform. You can Google it. He bragged about the fact that over a million new people had been added to the labor union roles in the four years that he'd been president, from 52 to 56. I never thought I would live to see the day when Richard Nixon would be viewed as a radical leftist by the Republican Party. And he would. And he was no, I mean, that's, yeah. but that's a fact. I mean, it's, it, we're, we're, we've lost our way and we've lost our, some of our politicians and we need to see labor. Um, we need to see folks who have a, a heart for labor and an understanding of what labor needs. Yeah. Um, back and labor in, is in one the of the leadership. only forces. Yeah, and labor is one of the only forces that can counterbalance the power of, you know, corporate power. Uh, the, the, the only two forces that can balance or, or push back against corporate power are number one, government, and number two, which is, you know, now controlled by Republicans by and large, so it's not doing that. And number two, organized labor. And, you know, we need to spread the word. Brent, you said it very well, and thank you very much, and good on you for, for work with labor as a union president. Paul in Lucerne, California. Hey, Paul, what's up? With all this money the Fed is pumping into the stock market, if it was just to give the American people that money, they would spend it in the economy, and we wouldn't slip into the Depression, and we wouldn't have to bail out the stock market. Right. It's been $6 trillion that the Fed has shoveled out to big corporations and banks. If they were to give and, that to us, uh, you know. we'd spend it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You're, you're, you're talking like John Maynard Keynes. <laughs> I'm with you. Thank you very much, Paul. Uh, John in Los Angeles. Hey, John, what's up? 
I believe that the economy and the society in general could recover, depending on what that definition is, within five years, if the right things are finally done. Keep in mind, the Great Crash of 1929, we didn't really get out of that until 1946-47. I mean, it was the end of World War II. There was this massive government stimulus program called World War II that really popped us out. Say it was 46 or 47 that we got out of it. It started in 1929. That's 18 years. You think we can get out of this in five? Yes, because people are starting to change their minds, I'm thinking. What our society has been based on is fear up to now, primarily, and lack of social responsibility. And people are starting to get that social responsibility of motivation back. And that, Mm -hmm. my friends, is what it takes to turn this boat around And, yeah, it may not go back to what it was. I hope not, because back then it was all based on greed, fear, which are basically the same thing. Okay, greed is just an offshoot of fear. Uh, Right, it's a fear of lack. He's a greedy liar. Uh, If we see enough social responsibility to tell the truth and do the right things and, you know, mitigate this thing right now so there's not any more damage that's already been done... Uh, We can do, uh, each one of us can do the right thing, and all together, we can get it all fixed up sooner than we think. And I hope that you're right, but (laughs) I'm skeptical. Beachside Bill in Orlando, Florida. Hey, Bill, what's up? Hi, Tom. It's nice to talk to you. Actually, I live here at Beachside. I'm I'm just south of the Kennedy Space Center, where next Wednesday, the 27th, is going to be a launch, the first one in nine years, to the International Space Station from U.S. soil. I have several concerns about it. I've lived here all my life, but my main concern is Trump taking the credit for this. And he's going to make a big to-do about nothing, because actually it was President Obama who opened up the doors here for these private corporations, which is going to be SpaceX and Elon Musk, who owns it. They are going to launch it. And what oh, the only thing Trump has done is kneecaps uh, NASA. NASA's like a subcontractor now. But if something happens to this rocket, uh, who's going to get the blame but NASA? Where And think about these billionaires. You're always talking about these billionaires. Well, Elon Musk, a lot of his money, he didn't earn. It's our money. NASA gave him a $10 billion contract, I believe in 2017, if my, my memory serves me well, to come up with the, uh, the command module. The, it, it's, it's fashioned after the Apollo module, except it's mm-hmm. updated now. So it's going to be interesting, and, and they're, they're encouraging people to come here, and they're expecting 250,000 people along the beach here. And Whoa! It, it, to, watch the tra- t- yeah. to watch the liftoff. Yeah, to watch the liftoff. And I see it out my back door here. I get it right out my back door. But the problem yeah. is, from Trump on down to the local sheriff here, Wayne Ivey, they're all encouraging people to come here. And, and the, the hotels are already booked in Cocoa Beach and Cape Canaveral are all up there. It's going to wow. be something, it's going to be historic. But the thing is, President Obama should get the credit. Not There's a whole history behind the space shuttle. And, well, and, and also, and, let's, and now, let's hope that these two new astronauts don't take COVID up to the space station. And that would be a disaster. Well, they're in quarantine, but they, uh, they've been checked and all that. And they flew on the shuttle, so they've already been quarantined and everything. They just flew in yesterday. Right. So, oh, okay. Well, let's hope that's the that's your information. Okay, Bill, yep. thank you very much for the call. Fascinating stuff. James in Spokane, Washington. Hey, James, what's on your mind today? Oftentimes you've mentioned, I've heard you mention the foreigners laughing at us, you know, 
and they do. We're absurd, but that's when they're awake at their cocktail parties. When they're asleep, you know we haunt their dreams. We've got a monkey in there with access to the nuclear launch codes and ICBMs. You know, it's got to be a nightmare for them. A good point. Yeah. But as far as you mentioned purging, like the GOP and our politics and whatnot, that's happening in the form of the COVID-19. You know, our system was not going to get these guys out of there. This thing is irredeemable. This is a universal dictate. Okay. This is our one great hope. It's the world's one great opportunity, I would say. I don't know about hope, but... Their nightmares are full of us. Excellent point, James. Thank you. Tony in Miami. Hey, Tony, what's what's on your mind? I came to this country back in the 1973 when busing started. Mm-hmm. And I was the only guy in the American history class that got A. The teacher made me walk to the blackboard and made the whole class bow down to me. Wow. <laughs> That's great. I have, a, I have a very interesting uh, history, but near mm-hmm. time, what do you say to people that are tired of incremental change? I mean, you had this congressman on yesterday, which he was saying, oh, we don't want people to go in the street, and we don't, I'm not talking about violence, but some sort of a movement, people get in the street and start demanding their rights, but it's just like gun control. Let me me tell you about gun control. Americans get all excited, they get all sad, they light up candles for two weeks, and then they forgo, everybody goes about their business and their rat race, and forget about it. What do you say to people that lost hope in the system? What I say is, Tony, if you look at the history of the United States, and I'm guessing you can probably look at the history of any other country as well and see something very similar, what you find is that the thing that actually provokes change, system-wide change, the kind of real deep actual change as opposed to incremental change that you're talking about, Tony, is crisis. You know, whether it was the Arab oil embargo in the late 70s and and Iran taking our, our hostages, uh, you know, uh, the story I'm sure you're familiar with, um, uh, that, that, that created a crisis that allowed Ro- Ronald Reagan to step into that and flip us from Keynesian economics into Reaganomics, or whether it was the last Great Depression in World War II, which uh, you know brought us the, the New Deal and, and a complete transformation in our political system, or whether it was the great crisis of, of the Civil War that brought the end of slavery and a new, essentially a new economy, the beginning of the Industrial Revolution in the United States, or the crisis of a worldwide depression in 1770, combined with England giving a massive tax cut to the East India Company so that they could wipe out all all these small tea shops up and down the East Coast and in what was uh, then the American colonies that provoked the Boston Tea Party and the American Revolution. Crisis is what provokes an opportunity for change. And there's a huge competition right now between the the Betsy DeVos, uh, Rupert Murdoch, billionaire class who are working very hard and then Charles Koch and whatnot who are working very hard to turn America into a libertarian nation where the where there's no regulation. This is what Trump did today with his or day before yesterday with his executive order saying to every regulatory agency in, in the government, feel free to do away with anything you want, basically. If you can justify it economically, that's fine. It doesn't you don't have to count lives anymore. So Yeah, I used to work on the on the right no, let me finish, Tony. On the right, you've got these people who are who are who understand this, 
And they see this as an incredible opportunity to cement their ownership of America and turn America basically into a fascist, a neo-fascist libertarian state. And then on the left, you've got, you know, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Bernie Sanders and people like that, Elizabeth Warren, who are saying, no, this is an extraordinary opportunity to revive the New Deal, to bring back Keynesian economics and to even, you know, move away from classic, uh, you know, neo-feudal capitalism into uh, cooperative, you know, co-ops and things like this, a new form of economy. And frankly, I think that which side is going to win is going to be decided on November 3rd. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. 